Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today, actually right now, I have Kara Williard with me because this is part two in our series on mountain towns and local food systems. So, Kara, maybe there's one person out there on planet Earth who has yet to listen to part one, which of course they should hurry up and go do. But just to give us a bit of a recap, talk a little bit about some of the topics that we covered in part one, and then why don't you set up what we're going to be talking about here in part two? Yeah, for those listeners, very few listeners, I'm sure, who haven't heard part one of our Mountain Town and Local Food Systems series, um, that was our setting the stage episode. So in that, we just kind of, first of all, outlined what is a local food system. Then we walked through the many different ways that you as a consumer can support and get involved in your local food system based on what makes sense for you. And then I just got to kind of outline some of the better practices out there for regenerative agriculture or for growing food in more mountainous or cold regions. That first episode outlined a whole bunch around the topic of local food and how it relates to the mountain towns we love. For those interested in local food or how they can get involved, that's a great episode to listen to and learn more about local food. Indeed. You may have buried the lead though, because we did also talk about therapy chickens. Anyway, turns out, spoiler alert, we're talking about therapy chickens again today, ladies and gentlemen. But in addition to that, what else is in store for people here in our second installment? Yeah, so we got to talk to Lindsay Gammon. She's the farm director at Gracie's Farm at the Blue Sky Lodge that's based in Park City. And she runs a really awesome market garden outside of Park City. So she talked to us about running a production farm, how to work more closely with chefs and get tourists and visitors more engaged with local food when they come to Park City, among many other exciting topics such as cow cuddling. One other big thing we talk about in this conversation that I thought Lindsay did a great job of explaining was the whole relationship of climate change and topsoil health. So there's a lot of great stuff going on in this one. I think this is a really nice addition to our series. And one more thing, turns out if last week was Shark Week, Kara style on the Blister podcast, turns out this week is Park City Week because this conversation, Lindsay is joining us from just outside of Park City. And then this Wednesday on our brand new crafted podcast, we have another conversation coming from Park City. So Park City, you're in the spotlight this week here on Blister. So definitely check out Crafted if you haven't yet subscribed to it. We are really excited about this show. We have amazing episodes in store for you coming down the pike. So definitely check that out. And it turns out Lindsay knows and is a big fan of the subject of this Wednesday's Crafted podcast. So that was kind of fun. And I think that is enough of an introduction for now. So let's just go ahead and get to our conversation with Lindsay Gammon. Here we go. Well, Lindsay, how are you today? And 
Where are you today? So um, I'm well, and I am actually in Park City, but a little bit outside of Park City in Wanship, Utah. Gotcha. And are you currently at the farm? I am. I'm in my tiny little office trying to maintain some quiet. <laughs> we we very much appreciate of this, course. that you're doing this. We also appreciate that you basically like ran in from harvesting, like literally harvesting to record this conversation <laughs> with us. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, August is a busy, busy, busy month on the farm. And so every day there's something. And today we are harvesting greens. Harvesting greens. Lindsay, tell us a bit more. You're harvesting greens where? What is this operation okay. that you are involved with. Yeah. So I farm for Gracie's Farm, which is a part of the Lodge at Blue Sky, which is an auberge resort hotel. Um, but uh, our farm is just called Gracie's Farm. And we are a small um, kind of a market garden operation that supplies produce to not only the hotel and the lodge and the restaurant up there, but also restaurants within Park City and the local community around here. Well, that's awesome, Lindsay. Yes, thanks for coming in on a Saturday. I know it's peak season and it's a crazy time to be recording a podcast, so we appreciate you being here. Um, I guess I'm a little bit curious, too, if you could just kind of zoom out a little bit and talk more about uh, just like Blue Sky, the lodge, and so kind of how that fits within Gracie's Farm so people can get a picture of what that is. Of course. So um, the Lodge at Blue Sky, again, like I said, is a part of the Auberge Resort Collection Hotel. Um, it's a boutique luxury hotel chain. And, um, you know, our owners, it's a it's a two part kind of, you know, operation where the owners of the, the land here at Blue Sky started this off as a ranch, um, more of an equine operation, adventure operation. And they have about 3000 acres um, right outside of Park City. And um, we've now added this boutique luxury hotel on the property that includes, you know, a lot of that ranch um, lifestyle and equine lifestyle, but also has, you know, encouraged the love of the land fruit through farming. And so that's where I come in. And so they've They've entrusted me to start this farm and to kind of, you know, show what the love of the land means. Wow. Lindsay, tell us more about your own background. Yeah. So um, I actually don't have a history or a background in farming. I did not grow up farming. I... Um, I grew up in Lake Tahoe in Incline Village, and um, so similar kind of climate to all these other mountain towns. Um, and my grandmother originally is from Italy and have, you know, farmers in our in our history. Um, but she taught me how to garden when I was really young, especially like in this mountain environment. So not easy. So she taught me kind of the love of, of the like soil and growing. Um, but that kind of went by the wayside. I mean, it was always in me, but I went to school for um, an undergrad in Spanish um, in Colorado and then did my master's in public health um, down at the University of Utah in Salt Lake and started a big garden when I was living in Salt Lake City. Um, and when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I really started to realize that that's what I wanted to focus my life on and see my, have my daughters see what I was doing, um, you know, love what I was doing, see that there's passion in my career. So I just gave up pretty much everything and just went full bore into growing. Um, so I started selling produce out, my out of my backyard in Salt Lake. Um, and that has just progressed. I moved up to Park City in 2012 and um, started the community garden here in Park City, the Summit Community Gardens. So, um, you know, really watched that grow and then started my own farm um, in Park City. So again, just really like hands-on knowledge 
every book that I have ever read is about farming, um, you know, but just a love of it, you know, really passionate. I make, but, you know, and I will say that I'm still learning every single day. There's it, farming is something that you never, you know, know everything about. So I feel, I feel like I have a long way to go still. Can you say just a little bit more? You were at the University of Utah studying what? Yeah, I did women's health and public health. Can you just say a little bit more about like what then got you to make the move to like, I'm going to start growing food? Yeah. So, you know, I was working in um, the state health department, focusing in on pregnancy research and um, women's health research. And I was going to an office every day, but coming home and to my garden. And that's where I found peace and solace. And, you know, I like I was pregnant, very, very pregnant. And was like, I don't I don't want my daughter to see me going to an office every day. I want her to see the love that's in my eyes for what I'm doing every day and, and really have her connect to the ground and to the earth. And so I just made the full transition out of public health, which I still care about and is still a piece of what I do, but um, wanted to fully go into farming. Public health through farming, I think, is one great approach. Exactly. Exactly. It's all a circle. Um, yeah, so I guess I'd be curious then to hear how Gracie's Farm started maybe and what Gracie's Farm looked like uh, prior to being Gracie's Farm. So just maybe paint a picture of that transformation. Sure. So um, Mike and Barb Phillips are the owners of the ranch, the Blue Sky Ranch and the land here. And um, I'm familiar with them and their family. And they were looking for a farmer to kind of start this process and to start this project and um, approached me to start their farm. Um, and that was four years ago and um, or maybe even four and a half years ago now. But um you know, Gracie's farm is located in the town of Wanship, so right below where the lodge is. And it's a typically a farming community and a ranching community, but the land on which the farm stands now was really overgrazed and incredibly overused by horses and cows and really wasn't that taken care of for a long time. So when we, when I kind of looked at the property, um, I was a little overwhelmed, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, the ground was as hard as concrete. There was, it was a dead zone. There was no life. Um, so, you know, I've spent the past four years really rejuvenating that land and kind of making it as productive as possible. So really, you know, I spent the first se season completely just getting the soil ready. So we didn't grow anything. We just built the soil up and, and prepped the beds and really made sure that we were doing it right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that's kind of I've seen that transformation from maybe like a fallow or overused lot to like, how am I going to take this and turn it into something that can grow? Um, so obviously, that was just thinking about the soil health and how you were going to transform the soil health. So I guess I'd just be curious to hear like how you kind of started to approach that process a little bit, maybe just so people who don't know about like what it takes to turn concrete into something that'll grow food, um, just what that process actually looks yeah. like when you're not using like huge machines or maybe you were, I'd just be curious to hear. Right. So um, it was, I would just say it's a lot of blood, sweat, tears, the whole thing. Um, we don't use any mechanical tillage on the farm. So we don't have a tractor. We have a, hand, a walk behind tractor that we use on occasion. And that initial preparation of the land, we did have to use that just to get that first crust of soil kind of broken up a little bit so that we could actually introduce life back into it. So again, the first season, you know, all I did was plan what the farm was going to look like with the orientation of the beds, where the greenhouses were going to be. Um, and then I just 
got digging in. So we used that uh, mechanical or the tractor walk behind um, initially, and then we used a broad fork. So for those of you who don't know, a broad fork is just like a giant pitchfork um, that you stand on and you pull back and open the soil to the air, to the water, lets bugs in. But, you know, doing that the first time was... Um, it, it, because it was so hard, it would, it took an entire season really. I mean, to do an 80 foot long bed, which is what our beds are. It took me an hour and a half to get that, that distance. Um, so, you know, it was really just intensive work getting the soil opened to, you know, everything that we, we needed. Um, and then, you know, we do raised beds here. They're not, boxes, but they're raised beds so that we have a little bit more availability in topsoil. So we add compost um, and just, you know, really keep adding to those beds and building up the soil around. And Lindsay, how many beds? Like, can you describe like how big of an area are we talking about now? Sure. So the Gracie's farm property is about three acres, but we really only farm on an acre of that space. Um, we do intensive growing here. So, you know, we plant very closely together on narrow beds. So our beds are 80 feet long and we have about 60 of those. And then we also have some raised garden beds that are a little bit more, um, pretty and kind of like a demonstration garden. So, you know, again, in total, it's about an acre, but every bed is less than three feet wide um, and planted so intensively that it's a, it's, it doesn't sound as big as it is actually, you know, it's a lot of work to maintain just that acre. I might like to ask one more question here before I give Kara a turn again. This is going to be my, um, maybe we'll, we'll see maybe kind of the dumbest question I ask in this conversation. I like to try to get at least one in. So let me try this out for you. Um, if someone's listening to this and is just like, man, this all seems like a lot of work. I have a suggestion. Why don't you just drive to the grocery store and buy some food and then you just prepare that? Right. Well, I mean, I would say as a super passionate advocate for local food, it's easy, but you don't have any sort of connection with what you what you do and what you grow and you don't know where your food comes from. Um, you know, pulling things out of the ground or putting the seed in the ground and seeing that entire cycle is really the beauty of, of farming. Um, and even if for people who are growing in a garden or in a pot or a raised bed, you know, there is that connection to understanding the, the complexity of food growth. Um, and to see the whole cycle, you know, kind of come to fruition is pretty, pretty beautiful. Um, you love your food a little bit more. It tastes better. Um, you can understand the hard work that goes into it. Appreciate our ancestors for what they've done. Um, appreciate your local farmer when you go to the farmer's market. It's a really um, heartfelt career for sure. I guess I'll be curious to hear um, how do animals play into all of this and like what how do you use animals in this farm system to help with what you're doing? You know, we're, we're pretty um, early on in that process. Um, you know, we, we have plans to eventually start adding some livestock into the farm. We do have chickens right now that we use on the farm. Um, and like I heard in your last episode, the chicken tractor, we do have, we have one of those as well. <laughs> um, and so we put them out on the fields, um, 
you know, when, when, when we're done with a crop and we're ready to transition a bed over, we'll put them out there and they'll scratch and they'll eat the bugs and they'll finish up the debris that's left over. And then they'll add their, their droppings and the nitrogen and, and then we'll put that into the ground. But eventually I'd really love to add some other animals on here and do a more rotational grazing experiment. Um, but, you know, because we have such a small land base and really intensive growing, we have to be really careful with what we do um, and how we add, add animals. Lindsay, do you have your own therapy chicken? <laughs> I sort of do, actually. But her, <laughs> but her name is Stevie after Stevie Nicks, and she's she's just the sweetest. See, I'm not alone. <laughs> I am the only person in this conversation without a therapy chicken. I am doing things that. wrong. Yeah, we also have cats and dogs and the whole thing. So all of them give us a little bit of love every now and then when we're like, this is a hard day, and they'll just show up. So I know you listened to part one, Lindsay, and I talked a bit on soil health, and I just wanted uh, people to start thinking about maybe why soil health is important to the places we love. And I know that's a huge passion of yours and um, kind of a lot of the reason you're doing what you do. And so I would just be curious to hear your take on the importance of soil health and especially in our mountain towns. Sure, sure. So, you know, I think industrialized farming in general has become kind of one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Um, and, you know, the erosion of topsoil is a real crisis. And so when I started this farm, I wanted to maintain some sense of regenerative agriculture and really focus in on growing our soil. Um, I really think, to be honest, that uh, the best vegetables come from healthy soil. And so, you know, when I started the, the farm, the whole plan was to never really use mechanical tillage um, because, number one, it destroys the soil structure. Um, when you keep tilling over and over, uh, the soil aggregates and the soil structure really start to crumble. They can't hold moisture. They can't hold nutrients. Um, the microbial life within that top level of pulverized soil really just doesn't exist. So it's really more of a an empty, you know, growing medium. And uh, we on this farm are trying to just really promote that top level of soil to be the healthiest we can, to promote the biodiversity, to to keep the water. Because right now, I mean, it's been a really rainy um, summer, but in general, we're in drought. And these mountain towns are getting hit with drought over and over um, and fires and an unhealthy topsoil layer just promotes all of all of those problems that we you know are dealing with in these mountain towns that promotes the drought it it makes us more you know um uh, susceptible to fire uh, all the things that everybody is struggling with so you know in general our farm because we don't use any mechanical tillage it's a little bit more work and it's a little bit you know of a longer process to get to achieve what we're trying to do. So, you know, our organic matter when we started this farm was at 1%. Um, now we're already at five and a half to 6% in just three years of ritual production. So, you know, I have a message to kind of promote on this farm, um, not only to our local community that's involved in the farm here, but also to the tourist economy that comes down. So we can actually promote that soil health, um, that message beyond just this little tiny town in, in Utah to, to actually, you know, broaden the base of regenerative agriculture speak, um, to really encourage people to understand that farming isn't just about large tractors and soy fields. It's, it's about, you know, actually promoting the health of the earth. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> well, yeah, it does make sense. And 
I'd be curious if you could sort of paint a picture of like, how are we doing on this front in terms of, let's keep it to the USA. Are more farmers well aware and making changes to farm in a way that does encourage good topsoil health? Or are we just beginning to scratch the surface on this and we need to see massive, massive implementation from many more people to get to where we kind of need to be? I think a little bit of both. We, you know, we're seeing a movement of regenerative agriculture, you know, in these smaller farms um, and in some of the larger farms, to be honest. But, you know, farmers have typically been rewarded for just producing as much as possible, as often as possible. Um, And that being using herbicides, pesticides and fertilizers to actually promote that growth. Um, But, you know, there is a movement out there and um, there is a new regenerative agriculture certification that's actually um, available you know, and it, it's, it's pretty intense and it's, it takes a lot of time. And so it's, it's difficult for these big farms to kind of commit to something like that because it takes them away from the field and it takes them away from potentially being as profitable as, as they can be, but it will pay off so much down the road. It's just getting them to buy in now. Um, but that being said, every small farm that does some sort of regenerative agriculture is contributing Um, in their small way and capturing that carbon and promoting this topsoil health. And so, you know, it can be change on a micro scale that actually ends up changing the macro scale. Um, It's just getting enough people kind of to buy in. And that's easier to do on a small scale. You know, it's just, you can focus in, you can see the difference. You're not managing hundreds and hundreds of acres to where it's hard to even tell what's going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's it's interesting for people to think about, you know, how they fit into that as far as what, you know, they can do to support the regenerative agriculture movement. And I think um, part one, we did talk about some of the ways that consumers, um, especially like when you're within a community, how you can interact with your local food system. Um, and I think Gracie's is a really interesting model, too, because you're not just always I mean, you're definitely providing a lot of food to the local community, but you're also helping engage some of the visitors with what this looks like. Um, and so I'd be really curious to hear a bit more about that model as far as I know you're um, working with a restaurant and other programs that you're doing on farm to kind of engage visitors. And so I just love to hear more about what you're doing to kind of help people who are visiting Park City learn more about local food and what they're getting from that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we not only being an operational farm, which is like our primary focus, but we um, we serve as kind of a guest farm. So, um, you know, we, we host guests from all over Park City and the lodge at Blue Sky. So a lot of the guests that come to this lodge will actually come down to the farm for a visit. And we offer a couple of different opportunities for them to either engage with us as farmers or to learn more about the process and, and um, you know, see what we do. So we do supply the restaurant, like I said. Um, most of the produce that we produce goes up to the lodge and, and is, is um produced or is provided in the restaurant up there. And then we offer a couple of options for guest experiences like tours. So we do some educational tours down here, one being a regenerative agriculture tour. So they really get kind of a 
a broad overview of what we do and how regenerative farming, what it looks like. Um, so they'll walk around the farm with us, take a peek at everything that we're growing, um, and then, you know, kind of learn about the techniques and all of that stuff and see the tools and kind of see what we do. Um, another tour that we do is a cut flower bouquet making tour. So they get to go in the farm and cut some flowers and, you know, take them home. Um, and then a medicinal pollinator and perennial flower tour as well. So we're trying to be as expansive as possible in giving an educational base to our guests so that they can actually, again, like I said earlier, take it beyond their stay here and kind of understand the food movement and the local food systems and, and look for it when they get back home to where they're, you know, where they're from. We also do um, a series of farm dinners here on the farm. So every summer we do, you know, probably a series between six and eight dinners that we host here on the farm. And it's either the chef from the lodge will cook or we'll host some guest chefs um, from around the country that will come and, and cook down on the farm. Um, we feature seasonal ingredients. So really focusing in on one ingredient per month um, that comes fresh from the farm that we love. So for example, so June we did um, baby greens and um, shoots. So, you know, like for us, June is, really early in our season. So we only have greens coming up on the farm. So we'll fo focus on that. Then we did a, a garlic dinner in July. Um, we're coming up on Tuesday for our tomato dinner. And then our, our final one of that series is our baby roots dinner. Um, but then we also do, you know, a women in food and farming event. We do a bee, um, a bee honey event. Um, and then we do a harvest dinner at the end of the season to really celebrate everything that we do here on the farm and the connection between the chef and the farmer. So guests can come to that, locals can come to that, and they, you know, really get the connection of eating in the farm and seeing the produce that's behind them sit down, like get presented on their plate. There's a bee event? Yeah, it's very cool. I like bees. I know. It's good. Tell me more yeah. about the bees. So we ha we have several hives on the property, um, and we invited a beekeeper from Santa Cruz um, who came out and did a demonstration on a, a we, we called a hive dive. So they they opened up the hives, they checked out the bees, they showed the guests what it looks like in the hive, and then we did a honey and um, honey focused dinner. So um, you know, adding honey to all of the different dishes and the courses, and then doing some beeswax. Um, activities, etc. So really showing the love for the bees because they're the hardest working things on the farm for sure. <laughs> yeah, those are awesome. All those events are, I mean, really cool how you're connecting, you know, the seasonality of the food, uh, having people kind of experience that directly and um, really like witness what that seasonal meal looks like. Um, and so that would be maybe another topic that I would just like to talk talk about is this concept of seasonality. And I know we mentioned in part one, um, sort of the benefits of trying to choose more seasonally and more locally when that's available to people. But I would be curious to hear how you kind of regard this concept of seasonality and how you work it into maybe some of your, what you're growing and how you're crop planning and then how you're trying to encourage that as far as uh, what people are eating. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, seasonality is one of the most important things for, for us here on the farm. You know, we just like most mountain towns, we have a very short growing season. Um, I think, you know, we generally say it's from Father's Day to Labor Day is our last frost to first frost. So it's 60 
roughly 60 days, um, you know, and we're able to extend that season using techniques like row cover, like I heard you talk about in the first episode. And then um, we have a hoop house, some caterpillar tunnels and a greenhouse. So, you know, we, we definitely can extend the season and we actually grow year round here at Gracie's, um, but we don't try to grow anything that's not possible. You know, we don't have a heated greenhouse. We, um, we use geothermal, you know, systems to, to kind of maintain a temperature in our greenhouse. So we're able to grow microgreens and greens through the winter, but we don't try to grow tomatoes in the middle of December. It's just not an option for us. Um, but because our season is so short, you know, we really try to focus in on the things that grow really, really, really well here being greens, baby root vegetables, you know, those kind of things. But we are able to kind of push the heat in the hot season and grow tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and things like that. But it's a really short, narrow time. So, you know, when tomatoes come in, it's a big deal. And so, you know, everybody's excited because it's such a short season, you know, it's, it's basically August and September and that's it. Um, so working with our chef in the crop planning process for us, um, has, has been kind of an education for, for him. You know, he comes from New York, um, and, you know, the Hudson Valley is incredibly prolific and it's a, it's like you can throw a seed in the air and something will grow. Um, and so he's really used to being having, you know, accessibility to produce at all times. Um, and so that kind of relationship and that education was kind of a was a tough go to begin with. You know, he, he was asking for things like corn, which we just can't do in our short season. Um, so I had to kind of bring him back to reality a little bit and really focus in on the things that we are good at. Um, so, you know, we grow all of our greens through the early, early spring and the late fall. And then we're able to grow some of our, you know, like hot season crops in the middle of summer and, and encouraging him to develop a menu based around that seasonality is really important as well. Lindsay, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit more about why those of us who maybe go to pretty traditional grocery stores or pretty traditional restaurants, why shouldn't I just be upset when I show up to dinner and it's like, I wanted corn tonight. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you don't get any corn tonight. <laughs> you know, like this just sounds inconvenient, yeah. right? From mm -hmm. like a modern lifestyle type of thing. So, you know, I, I, I want you to kind of make the case for why we ought to care about this. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts about okay, if you really feel strongly about seasonality, well, how do we do things that actually start to make a dent here to kind of get a modern society that is appreciating and operating on a more seasonality-focused system of eating? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. You know, our modern conveniences of going to the grocery store has really disconnected us from our food, I think. You know, buying meat in a styrofoam pack with plastic, that doesn't have any reality. Um, and it's the same with vegetables. You know, if you have tomatoes and avocados and bananas available in the middle of January, um, and they're traveling thousands of miles to get here, you have no connection to that, that piece of produce. So, Really, my case for seasonality is the connection to the food that you're eating and the local food as it's produced, um, reminding people that it's not always 
easiest is not always the best. Um, you know, the nutrient quality in local produce and seasonal produce is far better than that that travels thousands of miles or that's harvested in the middle of January from a greenhouse that's heated somewhere. Um, you know, the soil gives a lot of nutrient value and flavor to all of the local produce that you're going to get. So it's going to taste better if you're eating a tomato in August versus eating a tomato in January. You know, I don't buy tomatoes between October and, and August, basically, because they're not good. They don't taste good. They don't provide me the health benefits that something that you can get locally would. Um, and that's seasonal. You know, I mean, the whole point of seasonality is you're eating what's supposed to be happening in that time. Um, and it's going to give you the most health benefits that you can get because that's how the, the earth has evolved. Um, you know, we weren't able to eat, you know, things that were thousands of miles away thousands of years ago. So we have evolved to eat seasonally. And that's really, I think, I'd love to get people back in focus on what's best for them, not only for their farmer and helping their local community and their economy, but also for their health. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too that you've mentioned now a couple times that you know you're working with a chef, and I would just be really curious to hear more about that kind of farm restaurant intersection. For any chefs that maybe are like wanting to transition to working more with local farmers or their local food system, like what are the things that they should be thinking about, and how do you and the chef that you work with go about some of these planning processes and things that make it so that you know they can they can plan accordingly and you can grow accordingly, and how does that look? Sure, sure. So it's, it's a really cohesive um, partnership in that and I'm really lucky because I have a chef that is right here, um, and, and really appreciates what we do. So, you know, he and I will get together um, early in the winter in January, and, you know, he'll kind of describe what he's looking for throughout the season, and I will say yes or no, I can grow those things. Um, and then we'll sort of plan the season accordingly. You know, my entire winter is spent planning the farm for the season. So I plan every planting date, seeding date, transplanting date, harvest date, um, to the date, to actual day, so that he can be menu planning based on my crop plan. So we're really, really good partners in you know, in the way that we look at menus and look at what we're able to grow. You know, some things change, like we have snow in June or, you know, way too, it's way too hot in July for arugula or something along those lines that we might have to kind of like shift our focus. But um, in general, we really work well together as far as planning out the season together. Um, so I can always guarantee that he's going to take the things that he asked for um, early in January, you know, and working with other chefs, there's, there's this level of like, well, I need to actually move my product and chefs are always looking for something that's really unique and cool and something like a talking point on their menus. And, um, it really encourages guests and, and diners to come into those restaurants. So in general, I, I will, you know, send out emails or, or talk to chefs, um, in restaurants that I go into and just see if they're looking for local produce or look, if they're missing something on their menu that they, they can't find locally and see if it's possible for me to do that and fill a niche somewhere. Um, but in general, you know, I think that there is, has historically been kind of a, a disconnect between chefs and farmers. And we're starting to see that collaboration a lot more now and, and the, the mutual appreciation of each other, um, you know, without, without chefs, we aren't, we don't function quite as well. And without farmers, the chefs don't function quite as well either. So, you know, really creating those relationships is, has been you know, kind of a highlight of my farming career um, and seeing what we grow 
made into these creative, beautiful pieces of art. You know, I consider chefs artists and um, and seeing the way that a tomato is used or or a, a microgreen is used um, is really cool. And it's a it's it completes that cycle. Like I was saying earlier, seeing that produce used in such a creative way um, is a real benefit for farmers to be to continue to be motivated to go out there every day and 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 bust their backs for it. Um, so, you know, I just encourage people to reach out to chefs um, in general because they're really open to it. Um, they're really excited to get involved with the local community and local producers. So um, it may take a little bit of, you know, guts to go in there and, and ask, but it's it's worth it in the end. I'd love to ask, so you were just talking about the kind of farmer-chef relationship strikes me there's an important third party here, and that would be people showing up to the restaurant. And while I guess I'm going to ask you to maybe try to speak for some chefs here now and restaurant owners, but I'd love to know if you have heard reports or have some experience with the people showing up at restaurants, and maybe they are told there aren't going to be certain things available that they might have a hankering for, be kind of expecting. Is there a common or is there a general experience of people being like, oh, okay, I understand that and get it? Are half of, do half of them get it and the other half are pretty put off that they can't eat these things that they're used to eating maybe back at home or they're just not that interested in operating seasonally? What kind of perspective can you share on that element of it? You know, I think in the development of menus, chefs can actually kind of cater to that, that confusion to some extent, right? Like people aren't going to go in and ask specifically for an ingredient if it's not on the menu. I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening, but I think that when you see the menu and you see greens from Gracie's farm or tomatoes from Renui farms down the road, or, you know, something like that, it actually gives the diners they feel a little bit of, you know, ownership in the way that they're supporting the local farms. Um, you know, I don't tend to supply industrial or chain restaurants. That's not something that I, I do. Um, and if you're, if you're looking for a chain restaurant, that's the same across the board, every place in the country, you know, that's not really going to, they're not going to support local farms because it has to be consistent. And the menu has to be the same, whether it's in Park City or in Gunnison or wherever, right? But, you know, the local restaurants are what makes our mountain town so special. And so, you know, we've got some amazing restaurants in all of these communities. And what makes them so cool is that they actually work with the local farmers and, and people who are coming from out of town can feel like they're a little bit a piece of the local community for that moment. Um, you know, and then, and then the locals actually know who I am. They know who the other farmers are. They know who the restaurant owners are and they can make that connection and feel like they're a piece of it as well. Um, you know, and they understand, you know, most people can't grow anything here. <laughs> like all the gardeners that I talk to are like, we have the black thumb. We can't grow tomatoes. We can't grow lettuce. We can't do it. So we rely on you to, to make this happen. And so they're excited to eat what's actually seasonal and what's local because they understand how hard it is to grow in these towns. It's, it's, it's a struggle for sure. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I, you know, I feel like some people are starting to engage with that, like 
always changing menu. Like they want to go to their favorite restaurant and see like the new menu that just came out for the month or the week or whatever it is. And so I think there's, that's kind of the other side of this is as we start to pull more towards these seasonal trends that people will actually be like craving that like next new dish that the chef's going to release. And it just might keep it a lot more interesting for people. Yeah. I mean, if you can get tomatoes or something that's super seasonal around here all year round, it doesn't make it special. It doesn't make it unique or exciting or, or worth spending a bunch of money on, you know, if, if, if it's going to be the same all the time, then what's the point, I think. So yeah, Lindsay, I think it's so cool what you're doing at Gracie's. There's so many unique aspects of what you're doing and you really highlight them. Well, I just loved learning more about Gracie's and about what you're doing. One thing that I was really intrigued by was that you do run a team of female farmers. And I just wanted to hear more about why that's important to you. I think that's a really awesome thing. I've worked alongside a lot of amazing women farmers, and I just want to hear why that's um, something that has kind of evolved at Gracie's. Sure. And, you know, I won't say that we were intentionally all female, you know, (laughs) we do not discriminate. But, um, you know, women in general, uh, around here are really tough. Um, and so, you know, women in agriculture has been, you know, such an important part of history, thousands of years of women doing the primary growing and foraging. Um, you know, when we were a foraging society and, you know, um, kind of like a mobile society, the women were primarily responsible for foraging. Um, and then when we became more stationary, we became the gardeners and we were the growers. Well, you know, the, the men went off to hunt, we should say, you know, we can say, but, um, you know, when the industrial revolution and the green revolution happened, um, women were kind of relegated to the back seat in farming um, because of, you know, the heavy machinery and the development of fertilizers and all the things that really you know, women didn't take a primary role in um, until recently. Um, But, you know, I'm starting to see women return to agriculture in these ways of these smaller market gardens, which is so cool. Um, You know, it's more of a land focus and a nurturing focus and, you know, a way to really care for the land. Um, So I'm seeing women return to agriculture all over the place. And, you know, my job, um, I'm really lucky in the way that um, my job is kind of modeled is, you know, I'm employed by Blue Sky, and I get to have the opportunity to actually train and kind of mentor other other farmers as they come up to give them the opportunity to explore and give me the ideas and, and give them a model for what they can take moving forward, if, say they want to have their own farm or if they want to do their own garden or, or something along those lines, I'm able to give them that training. And so it's been really important to me to, you know, see these women that I've hired kind of blossom and develop into these really cool, strong farmers and see where they're going to take it in the future. Um, because I think, you know, women in farming in general has endless potential to be better than what it has been in the, in the past. Um, and so it's super cool. And, and we're all really, you know, a team and a family and we're all really dang tough. Um, so it's, it's great. So given that this is a series on mountain towns and local food systems, I'd love to ask you kind of a more open-ended question of what certain things that you are currently doing at Gracie's that you think could be replicated or are the most important things to try to get replicated in other mountain towns? Well, you know, and and I'm very aware that our situation is a little bit different than many 
people who are going into farming or who have farms in other mountain towns. But, um, you know, the land access issue is incredibly difficult. Um, but even if you can find a small backyard or a small piece of land to, to actually kind of rehab and regenerate, um, to really focus in on soil health and make that space better than what it was when you started, you know, really our tenant on regenerative agriculture here is to give back more to the earth than we take from it. And so everybody can do that. Everybody can plant some pollinators in their backyard. Everybody can plant, you know, some lettuce in their backyard or, or have a tomato that they move in and out every single night because of our cool nights in these mountain towns. Um, you know, really, I think the, the key piece of, of replicating this this farm is just understanding the connection between food, earth, and our bodies, um, and what we what we owe back to the earth. Um, you know, and and we all recreate in these places, and if we don't start taking care of them, then we're not going to have the recreation anymore. Um, so, just giving somebody the ability to understand the difficulty of of farming or of growing something in those in these towns, I think, gives you an appreciation for for what it gives back. Um, so again, I think if you can grow a tomato or a, a squash plant or some basil in your window box, um, do it because that's going to actually make you understand a little bit more about the, the cycle and the connection between what we do every day playing outdoors and, you know, the actual reality that it might not always be available. Um, and giving back more to that earth is going to help us, you know, lengthen that time. By the way, we've gone this whole time and haven't talked about like skiing or mountain biking. We've talked about therapy not chickens, <laughs> but not skiing or mountain biking. And you do both of these things. I do. I do. I do. I love to ski. I grew up skiing. You know, I grew up in Tahoe, so I skied and and I'm a, a an avid trail runner and a biker and you know, I, I live out in those mountains. I, that's, that's why I'm here. You know, that's why I choose to farm in one of the hardest places in the country is because I want to be outside doing the things that I do every day. Um, so yeah, I love both of those, all of those things. Pretty cool. I'm on a call with two farmers slash skiers slash mountain bikers slash therapy chicken <laughs> users. This is quite a this is quite a moment for me. So thank you. This is I'm in rarefied company. I feel like so pretty cool. <laughs> One more thing I definitely needed to ask you about before I let you go on the Gracie's Farm website. There's talk of cow cuddling. I also really like cows, and so if I come to the farm, I need cow hugs, or I'm gonna just absolutely give you like a zero star rating. So is this truth and advertisement here? Am I, I can cuddle cows if I come to Gracie's farm? We could definitely arrange that. We have a, an entire herd of rescue cows. Um, so, you know, part of this, this property that I'm on is teamed up with a, what, what is the Saving Gracie's Foundation? And it's a uh, horse and farm animal rescue. So we have a herd of cows, mostly dairy cows that have been rescued from you know, prior, prior to slaughter. Um, and they just live out their best life here, hanging out, um, eating grass and loving the mountains as well. So we have some, some rescue cows that you can, can snuggle with. Well, Lindsay, it's been awesome talking to you. I mean, everything <laughs> from the regenerative agriculture side to kind of getting people to think about some of that farm to restaurant connectivity and where the chefs and maybe even like resorts and lodges can get involved when it comes to local food. 
I think it's also really awesome to hear not only how um, local consumers within their community can get involved, but also when you're visiting a place and you're recreating in a mountain town as a visitor, um, there's a great way to play into the local food scene there as well. So I think it's awesome how you spoke to all those. And I love what you're doing at Gracie's. I really hope to visit someday soon. I love Park City. So maybe Jonathan and I will get out there soon and do some cow cuddling. (laughs) Yes. Oh, we'd love it. Definitely. Please come. So thanks for taking time from your busy harvesting peak season Saturday to speak with us today. Um, It's been awesome to get to know you better and get to know about Gracie's. Oh, thanks. It was such a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you again. Well, thanks so much, Lindsay. And on that note, we'll let you go get back to some really hard work. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. And please say hi and give our best to all of your fellow farmers. Yeah, we do hope to see you soon. Oh, I can't wait. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for part two of our mountain towns and local food systems. We want to say thanks to Lindsay for the great conversation. And we would highly recommend that you follow Gracie's Farm at Gracie's Farm Blue Sky. You can find them there on Instagram. That might now be the best place to follow them. But we will include a link to their Instagram handle and to their website in the show notes of this episode. So, Kara... Thank you for the great co-hosting job. Taylor Ahern, thank you for producing this episode. And from all the rest of us on the Blister team, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be talking to you again this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday on all of our other podcasts. So look those up. We'll talk to you soon.